Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall. I'm very happy to be welcomed uh, by, joined by, sorry, Brian Miner. Um, we've had, uh, I wanna first of all say like a big thank you to Brian for making this possible because we've had a few technical difficulties and it can be difficult sometimes to get these rescheduled and he's been very flexible and we've made this work. So thank you very much, Ryan. Brian. Yeah, thanks for having me on. <laughs> Um, so to just introduce Brian, if you haven't heard of him, um, if you've heard of Alberto Nunez, hopefully you might have heard of Brian because they're very good friends. So you might have seen Brian pop up in Alberto's kind of Instagram feed on his stories or anything along that. And uh, Brian does some great work and that's why he's on the podcast. Uh, so in terms of his education, he has an MS in health and exercise science. He's a certified strength and conditioning specialist and is the owner of BD, uh, Brian Minor Coaching um, and co-founder of Iron Woman, uh, which I hadn't actually heard of before. Um, also a USAPL raw powerlifter um, and IP and NGA professional natural bodybuilder. So incredibly strong. Um, and I mean, if anyone has seen Brian on Instagram and if you haven't, check him out and check out some of his recent competition photos because they are outstanding. The condition you got in was kind of, I mean, everyone would want to achieve that sort of condition. It's kind of like the, the A star of a natural bodybuilding condition. So that was fantastic. Yeah, thank you. Is there anything else you kind of want to add? Um, because that was kind of just a brief kind of overview of yourself, Brian. No, I think that's that's good. I appreciate you having me on. And, um, you know, your podcast is one that I've always enjoyed listening to. I think you always have a, a good lineup and a good diverse, um, you know, different diverse perspectives on on different topics. So I'm looking forward to it. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, in terms of this podcast specifically, I mean, there's, it's obvious why you're on. Um, we have a really nice niche and I like to bring on people who can add kind of great information and great kind of lessons to that. And I think that's what you've been doing really well with your recent articles on your website, um, which is myojournal.com and I'll link that below. And we're going to be talking about those and also on your Instagram, just making people think um, and it's really kind of, I, I'm glad that you're doing it because it's nice to see it um, and those interactions you can have with people and they just learn really well. So um, start by introduction, we'll be talking about the Myojourner article that was kind of on the fitness fatigue model. Um, and I thought it would be great for you to kind of just introduce what the fitness fatigue model exactly is, kind of where its foundations are and how it kind of applies to us as trainees. Yeah, so I, I think the the fitness fatigue model is the first thing I want to point out is it's a it's a conceptual framework. Um, it, it's hard to you know we can't quantify fitness and we can't really quantify fatigue. Um, both of those are are subjective measures um, for the most part, and and we're getting towards a point where I think you know we we have objective ways of assessing those, but. What the fitness and fatigue model essentially is, is like each training session we go into, we have a fitness building component. And with fitness, that can be, you know, hypertrophy, strength, endurance, you know, whatever your goal is. Um, but with that comes a fatigue cost associated with it, both acutely and residually. Um, so what the fitness and fatigue model basically says is, or demonstrates is that the difference in or performance, like the acute performance, our preparedness is simply the difference in sort of our ceiling on the model um, for fitness minus or less the residual fatigue that's masking the expression of that. And so um, 
it, it's it's funny because it, the reason I brought up the quantitative aspect is it's an it's an equation without <laughs> defined like parameters for each. Um, so it, it can be a bit tricky, but what it does allow us to do is look at things conceptually because in in that regard, there's a lot of flexibility and pliability with programming when it comes to being able to, you know, whether it be for a power lifter or a bodybuilder, being able to express your performance in the gym um, to progressively overload and see continual progress. And I mean, in the article, there was, you drew a really nice parallel to kind of the en energy balance equation. And I don't know if you just want to touch on that, just because I think it might bring it home to some of the listeners who are familiar, like people get energy in, energy out, um, whether mm -hmm. or not kind of that will make people click. Um, I'm trying to think back to that particular article, actually. That was that was one I wrote for, for DeNovo. I yeah. think what, are you talking about how the, uh, I, I think that what, what I was using there was how it's unquantifiable in some senses. Um, it's like the the energy outside of the equation we don't we can't quantify with accuracy um we know the energy inside of the equation you know we can track our macronutrients our caloric intake you know in a really granular manner but when it comes to the energy outside of things um it's it's kind of not best guess we can we can have a general good idea but um i guess the point i was making there is there's a lot of uh there's a lot of flexibility there and not to put like hyper focus on one particular um, variable because for example, like sometimes people, and I'm sure you've experienced this in contest prep is you'll get to the point where it's like, you'll, you'll do your assigned cardio, you'll do your training and then you'll, you'll check those boxes off the list and then you'll be a, you know, couch potato the rest of the day. Mm. And so that, that impacts your expenditure. Um, is that the, the, the part that you were referencing from that article yeah, it's like like you exactly said they're not closed systems it's not simple stuff it's mm -hmm. kind of like every single like we know protein carbohydrates fats they all have different thermic effects of feeding you just talked about kind of if you do cardio you're not netting mm -hmm. that amount of kind of cardio as yeah. caloric like calorie burn you may then end up kind of being lazy and dialing down your neat and in just the same yeah. way I guess with recovery, you were kind of talking about how like, I don't know, some days you could have good sleep, some days you could have bad yeah. sleep. Um, and that's why, yeah, it's like a concept. I think the, the idea yeah. that it's conceptual is really important. Yeah, I think that now coming full circle, I, I remember the exact point I was trying to make of that is, is that the programming that you perform in the gym, like you're, it's, it's simply a best guess to yeah. get you your desired adaptation based off of the, the variability on the, fatigue side of the model. So, um, and, and I think it's, it's important to realize that because I think as we, you know, the evidence-based community becomes, um, or like evidence-based strategies become more, um, the norm. Some people tend to micromanage their training beyond what is probably even optimal. Um, and I think you sort of lose, it's easy to lose that ability to use your intuition, on a day-to-day -day basis and i think the just understanding the conceptual framework of that you can uh th there's a lot of wiggle room there for sure yeah i think um a lot of the listeners here will be those types because they're listening to mm -hmm. this podcast so they're very interested they're not kind of they're probably not genetically blessed and can just go into the gym pound it and just recover and just grow and they want right. to know the details and so i think i think the point that you're bringing up about how it is just conceptual and 
the implication and you talked about it in the article there's implications for optimality in that you it's very like what is optimal like you can't actually mm-hmm. pinpoint that because there is no one way to do things and i really like the fact you and to quote the article you said like you can't be married to one approach because there there, there is no one approach there's no one size fits all for everyone right absolutely uh, and then in that i i thought it was interesting because it when i was reading it it made me think of and when you just reiterated it then it made me think of something called the hindsight bias i don't know if you've heard of that um bryce lewis kind of has talked about it i think he brought it up when he came on the podcast quite a while ago and that's kind of like people look at what they've done and then it's kind of like causation and correlation and it's kind of mm-hmm. like oh if i did that and i got this then that must be what brought this and right. what your article made me think about is like how the hindsight bias just rings true and that you don't really know what actually led to what eventually happened have you yeah. seen that kind of come out in your own training yeah. and programming absolutely and especially with coaching um and i think it's something for me that you know, is, is a dual athlete competing in powerlifting and bodybuilding. It's, it's easy for me to, it would, it would be easy for me to look at powerlifting and say like, this is great training for hypertrophy. You know, this is the way, because this is how, you know, it's gotten me progress. But I think there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of aspects of powerlifting or, or the, if you're not careful, the dual athlete can, can sabotage some of their progress with, you know, over, over specificity on the powerlifting side of things. And I think that's important to acknowledge as well. Um, but yeah, I absolutely agree. I think we all have that, you know, biases based off of our experiences and, you know, as a coach, you see that all the time. And, um, I think just, I'm a big believer that you should have a base baseline conceptual understanding, um, of kind of how things work. And so a fitness and fatigue model is something that is broad enough that I think most clients can, can understand um, the implications of. And I think it's, it's helped people to buy into a strategy um, and, and it helps with compliance significantly. Yeah, I think the, the great thing with understanding that model is that everything that you do in the gym, like you said, comes with the cost. Like you can't just mm-hmm. do more and more and more. There's like every time you do attack a muscle, you're going to get that added fatigue. So it's like finding the right balance between the two to then make sure that you've got that good outcome in the at the end. Absolutely. And like you said, it, it's incredibly difficult. You have to then, and then because you have an understanding now of this model and hopefully the listeners now understand kind of the fitness fatigue framework, you then realize how important recovery is, which is a, what a lot of mm-hmm. people don't then think about. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that I catch myself with all the time. You know, I, I don't, uh, I mean, there's days where I'll realize, you know, it's eight o'clock and I've maybe had a hundred grams of protein the entire day, you know? So it's like, come on now. Like it's, it's a good way to kind of check and make sure that you're, um, you know, we, like I said, optimizing, we don't know. Um, but it's, it's a way to make sure that you're steering the ship in the right direction on with the big pieces anyway. And I think, I mean, having that awareness and then realizing it's conceptual, then I think a lot of the time it scares people because they they want a black and white, like one way to do things. But I always say to clients and things like the fact is that it is this complicated means you can kind of chill out about the small minor details yeah. um, because yeah. there's just no point. Like there's no point in trying to. It's kind of like trying to hit your macros exactly on the head every day it's like you you can't actually know you are because of all these different kind of they can be off yeah. in the packaging and various things yeah and i i guess that's a 
that's a pet peeve of mine. Seeing the uh, it, it's all it's uh, the irony of that. Um, you know, it's like the the evidence based community, and seeing somebody say, you know, I my fats are at fifty seven grams. You know, I'm up from fifty five. It's like okay, well, like, uh, how <laughs> don't d don't take three flights of stairs. You know, <laughs> it's like that's that's uh, kind of the extent of it. So I think it's. Um, yeah, that's I think we we've kind of driven the point home there. One thing that I did want to touch on about that model that I think has been very useful for people um, that I work with is just understanding, you know, like you said, each each input has a fatigue cost. And so having a directed stimulus is very important because you'll if you see if you have like a nonspecific stimulus in high volumes, it's like you're not really raising that fitness ceiling, but you are raising the fatigue aspect. So you're not really it's that's the worst case scenario. And so you see that a lot with people that just go into a gym um, and just, you know, annihilate themselves or they, you know, a bodybuilder or a bikini girl doing, you know, hours of plyometrics and things like that. You know, so it's it's one of those things that uh, I think, if anything, drives home the point that you know, having a directed stimulus is, is equally important. Yeah. I think having a, a question kind of when a trainer does something, they should really be able to answer like every part of their program. If they mm -hmm. like really want results, like every single part Absolutely. of their program, there should be a reason for it. And it's not just, Oh, I had a bit more, like I just felt like I needed a bit more there. And it's yeah. kind of like, but yeah. that's going to take yeah. away from something. Not like you can't just add, there's always a cost. So yeah, no, I think yeah. that's and you'll, really good. Yeah. And you'll see that with, uh, with strength athletes every now and then, like say somebody is, you know, you have a power lifter that they, their knee hurts or whatever. They have to lay off from squatting or deadlifting. You oftentimes don't even have to change their programming for bench press, but all of a sudden they have more adaptive resources to progress with that. And so yeah. I think that's, that's another component is just realizing like if for hypertrophy, like the specialization aspect of it, you can't, bring up everything optimally all at once. Um, yep. and so there's like by scaling back in one area, that might be all you need to progress more in another. And I think more people are focused on, okay, we need to throw more stimulus at that body part when it could be, let's, let's just sort of chill on the other ones a little bit. Mm -hmm. And actually, I guess likewise, because, and this is, I mean, I'm enjoying the discussion because it's just made me think on the other side of the model where the recovery is, if you're getting insufficient sleep every single day, like you might not even need to specialize yet and you just need to sort out Ex your sleep. Exactly, exactly. And so there's so many moving parts that like it, it makes giving, it makes giving recommendations a bit difficult yeah. um, because there's such a wide range. And, and I know uh, a lot of people are looking for really actionable you know, actionable advice. But when you say, you know, perform between, you know, 12 and 20 set or, you know, 10 and 20 sets per body part, it's like one of those, you know, it's a hundred percent more than the lower yeah. end of the spectrum. So it's like, you know, what, like there, there's, there's so many, uh, what ifs, you know, mm -hmm. there's so many, um, depends factors, but I think it, by just understanding the, the basics, you can kind of navigate your way through that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny because it is a very basic conceptual theory, but in reality, it's very complicated and has all those moving parts. So, um, absolutely. No, I think we have driven home the point on that, and we can move on to kind of the the, the second <laughs> yeah. article where you kind of progressed yeah. on this. Um, and I thought it would be really good to have your kind of the definition of intensity, and you had kind of two definitions for that. Um, so, if you want to kind of roll into those. 
Yeah, and, and I think, uh, I guess intensity, when, when the physique athlete sort of thinks of it, they think of, of effort. And, um, you know, it, it's always bothered. I know there's, you know, strength coaches that that's like a pet peeve. It's like they don't understand what intensity actually is. Well, that is one formal definition of intensity is relative effort. And so they're just using a different definition. Um, but intensity in terms of like there's absolute intensity, the, the percentage of your one RM, your load, you know, the load on a bar. Um, and then there's relative intensity, which, you know, the best way and probably the most popular way of quantifying that is with RPE or reps in reserve. Um, and basically that's just going to look at the difficulty within a rep range that mm -hmm. the set was, um, which for physique athletes, like, unless you know, your one RM on, you know, a, an exercise like relative intensity is probably going to be your, your most utilized tool. Yeah. Um, especially since, you know, most physique athletes are pushing within two to three reps of failure in there. They're doing probably a bit less sub maximal, um, work than than maybe a power lifter would mm -hmm. no brilliant and and then i thought that really linked well to the henman size principle so kind of the max recruitment um of kind of muscle fibers and things and how that has implications for both um scenarios of intensity yeah so uh, the the size principle gets i think misunderstood a little bit i think a lot of people assume it's you know with increased force demands like load on the bar you're going to increase more weight which is true but the force demands don't necessarily need to increase in order for you to also increase muscle recruitment um so there's basically you know the absolute intensity the load on the bar the you're going to call into action the amount of muscle fibers that are required to to you know oppose that force <laughs> Um, but if you have an existing force, say you have, you know, 70% of your one RM on the bar, your like the size principle still rings true for maintaining a force demand. So that's why in, in research that's looked at, um, like Brad Schoenfeld has shown, you know, you can progress with hypertrophy across basically, you know, a full spectrum of rep ranges. Um, you just have to take those, those higher rep ranges closer to, mm -hmm. to failure in order to accommodate that. And what's happening on a mechanistic front is you're fatiguing and you're pulling more, um, basically more soldiers into action <laughs> to, yeah. to lift that load. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's the similar outcome, similar end outcome, but just two different avenues. You can either progress load or you can basically chase relative intensity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because... In order to get the recruitment you're after. Yeah. And that's kind of like getting those uh, faster twitch muscle fibers that are recruited when you're yeah, pushing towards closer to failure or with higher loads. Um, if you hit a certain like load threshold, then you end up recruiting everything. And if you push towards failure, you end up requiring to recruit those as well. So I guess the take home is kind of like if you're lifting very, very light and very far away from failure, it's just not even stressful yeah. for the body and it's not going to really do much for you yeah and you might you might develop some slow twitch fibers with you know submaximal work but one thing that i think is important to realize is i mean people people acknowledge the importance of training volume it's certainly the most highly correlated variable but we have to make sure we're defining volume the right way and uh if people are using tonnage sets times reps times weight mm -hmm. Is, is kind of a proxy for that they can that can mislead some people because it's not accounting for the relative intensity yeah. of of the that stimulus so 
Um, so, so that's one thing is if you're doing, you know, 10 sets of three versus three sets of 10 with the same load, the three sets of 10 is likely going to get you a much more significant, you know, robust effect. So, um, that's where I think the formal definition of volume actually, um, becomes very important as well. Yeah. I think volume, I, I, again, it's one of those things that's quite simple on the surface, but when you dig into kind of what various things could like attribute towards volume, it gets quite complicated. And I think uh, Greg Knuckles had a great definition for kind of talking about number of hard sets. So that kind of had that Mm -hmm. relative intensity and he kind of talked about a number of hard sets within a rep range that was kind of good for hypertrophy. And I thought that was quite a nice way of talking about it. Yeah, I mean, you're looking at full muscle recruitment at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, And as far as like absolute load, usually around that 80% range of your one rep max is where you have initial, you know, full spectrum of recruitment out of the gate. Um, but the way that correlates, even if you do the relative intensity calculations, um, it usually ends up being around like a seven or eight RPE anyway, regardless of rep range you're in. So, um, that's convenient because you, you kind of like, it's, it's hard to screw it up. You know, you can't, like, if you push a set close enough to failure, maybe stopping just shy of failure, like your objective has been met. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's important too, that like just simply getting to that relative intensity, it doesn't mean that all rep ranges are created equal. Um, because I think there, there is some research that looks at match sets of two to four rep max versus eight to 12. And they're both at the same, I think they were both two failure, but the eight to 12 rep range had, you know, greater increases in hypertrophy. And mm-hmm. I think they, they both had maximal recruitment, but I think just the total tension, perhaps even on like the slow twitch fibers is what I would hypothesize might've contributed to that added hypertrophy there. Mm-hmm. And I guess this is, I, I don't know if you're familiar of kind of um, myo reps, which is kind of like yeah. drop sets or kind of those kind of intensifiers. And that's why you can kind of get away with having quite a low load potentially and just kind of having short rest periods because the relative intensity is just so high. So yeah. I think they call them like effective reps in the research because of the the fact that you're just getting full muscle fiber recruitment because the relative mm-hmm. intensity is so great. Yeah, no, it's uh, that's a very valuable tool. It's something that I program for my clients pretty frequently if I oh, know cool. they're, they're capable of doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, because if somebody's not capable, like beginners it's been shown in research it's harder for them to push to you know full failure mm-hmm. um but you know if people are in a time crunch they're especially useful and i would go as far as to say and there i i'm curious for other people's opinions on this but i'm not sure what i'm not really sure what the downsides of that would be um like what what straight sets would offer that myo reps wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only thing I can really think of is that perhaps you just don't get, like I s- said earlier, that eight to 12 rep range was superior to the two to four. Perhaps you're just not getting quite as much like slow twitch development earlier in the set, um, mm-hmm. working up to that point, um, which I think could be avoided maybe by doing two activation sets or something like that. Um, and that's something I've been experimenting with, but I, I use myo reps, a lot <laughs> and for me you know just with my schedule and you know having a kid and having a business it's like when i get in there if it wasn't for my reps i probably wouldn't do half of my accessory work so it's uh it's been a about valuable tool in that regard 
Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, actually, it's funny when we're speaking about my reps. I am. Um, I have the luxury of training twice per day, and in the evenings, I do my kind of accessory work. And uh, I did my reps on kind of traps, um, triceps, and delts, and it took like no time at all. I was kind yeah. of like wow like this is ridiculously time efficient um mm-hmm. i guess it could be tempting just to get a bit carried away and the only um kind of downsides or not downsides but the only ways i found that it was difficult is sometimes tracking it um can be kind of a bit complicated how like progressing it can be somewhat difficult in some ways and then it's just limited to some exercises so you can't do it on like a, a squat it's just right. there's no go right. there or like a bent over barbell row kind of having the back in that position <laughs> Yeah, there's certainly limitations to its application for sure. But I think, like you said, the accessory movements, it works very, very effectively for mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. I think that was great. And we've already talked about it a little bit, but um, after, within that article, you kind of touched on fatigue management and kind of its importance. Uh, you talked about kind of how training volume and frequency can impact the training stimulus. Um, so I thought it'd be interesting to kind of hear a bit more kind of your thoughts on that on frequency and yeah kind of i I guess guess it's kind of how frequency and volume and kind of the fact that they are kind of very interlinked so even with intensity kind of all three of these variables training intensity Mm -hmm. training volume and training frequency kind of when you when you change one of them it can kind of somewhat impact the other ones um so I guess all the, it's kind of all the rage or it maybe isn't to do higher frequency programs um, and kind of what the implications are there. We've already talked about kind of, you talked about the, the model in that kind of adding more isn't cost free. So when people are seeing like, oh, I train like a bro split and I do legs and I do four sets of squats on one day. So now, oh, I should train two to three times a week. Maybe I'm going to do my legs, four sets of squats three times a week and kind of mm-hmm. just talk about like the implications of that potentially. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a great question and I don't think we have enough research. There, there's been some recent research, which I'm sure you're aware of that, that shows that there could be a point of diminishing returns, which there, there probably is like it, there absolutely is, I'm sure. But, um, I don't think it, it's too early to really rule out the benefits of higher frequencies, um, especially in really advanced athletes. And that's one thing with research is we don't like, we're never going to get a study with elite level you know, bodybuilders mm-hmm. that's, you know, a long enough duration, you know, I mean, we have, we're talking about natural bodybuilders training three years in the off season to gain two pounds of muscle, you know, so it's, and then looking at the op, you know, the optimal way to do that. And so like, we have to make inferences about all of this. Um, but ultimately I, I guess where I stand on it is I think the, the research is pretty clear that, uh, frequency is, is important, but it's, it's not as important as training volume. Yeah. So I think volume is still the most important variable. And I think, um, and I think Helms has used this term before frequency can kind of be considered a valve for that volume because right. there is a point of diminishing returns with intra-session volume as well. But, um, James Krieger has a great research review where he's done some, uh, like some additional, like compiled, a few meta-analyses in addition to just some of the other mechanistic research. And he's kind of shown um, that a frequency of like one and a half to two times a week seems to be 
you know, based off of, you know, what we've actually see is, is outcomes, which is important, you know, yeah. is hypertrophy actually greater, but also the mechanistic rationale, like muscle protein synthesis, you know, recovery rates of work, um, recovery rates of, of total strength, and what makes sense for, on that front too, and sort of consolidates all of that. Um, so, yeah, I think the research is pretty clear that two days is probably better than one. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happens, and I notice for physique athletes, or for any athlete, or even more for strength athletes, what what bottlenecks people long term the most, in my experience, both as an athlete and a coach, is injury. Um, yeah. And it's not it's not um, like okay, I just I I don't have enough time to do the volume I need to do to progress. Like that that just doesn't we don't see that in practice very often. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happens is people will just get banged up. Like I think connective tissue is, is going to be the limiting factor in sort of how I base frequency recommendations, um, off of is, is like, okay, how much can you safely handle? First of all, like, you know, what makes sense on paper if you're not able to do without your knees becoming, you know, inflamed (laughs) and that in turn limiting our, uh, ability to produce overload. I mean, that, that needs to, I think, get a little bit more attention, um, is looking beyond the, the actual hypertrophy benefits in the short term in the protein synthetic benefits and actually looking at like, okay, across 12 weeks or across, you know, a year, what is it, is this frequency going to get us in a better place mm-hmm. in two years than it is in, you know, just looking beyond that short time frame? And in many cases, I don't think it will. Um, just based off my own experience. I mean, I've, I, I think I like, I, li- I really enjoy working with powerlifters, um, probably more than bodybuilders. But the, uh, the nice thing about it is I've been able to see that, you know, the advantages that that frequency can have on strength in the short term. Right. But at the same time, you have to really be careful because it like no elite athlete is going to avoid like aches and pains throughout their entire career. Um, it's just very uncommon. So I think it's important to cater to that first and foremost. Um, and I think that that's also a case for like operating more. Um, I know you've had a number of debates about like the minimal effective dose versus the maximum recoverable. Um, and I think just being in that middle ground and just limiting the times where you push to that maximum recoverable, um, is important as well. So it's, it's managing the frequency from a, um, joint integrity standpoint and just making sure that you're still getting enough volume. And I don't know many people that from a hypertrophy standpoint are unable to grow off of two times a week. Mm -hmm. I guess that's what it boils down to. And I think that that lends itself to, to better sustainability long-term. No, brilliant. And I'm actually really glad we kind of covered off my points on the two articles, but you've really intrigued me with your comments on kind of the, the factor in kind of long-term development. And we know this, like the best bodybuilders are the ones who are in the game the longest, like natural bodybuilders. Exactly. <laughs> uh, like yeah. Jeff Alberts has been in, I mean, mm-hmm. fantastic shape and he's suffered injuries, but he's done very well to kind of get away with not having too many. Um, and like yourself, like, I mean, you're not old, but you're uh, more mature than a lot of the younger guys coming up and like myself. Um, and I'd love to learn kind of what you've done yourself or lessons you've learned and what you might change in future. And if there is any up and coming bodybuilders kind of who are looking to be their best and get to their genetic limits in terms, and you talked about kind of, it isn't a volume thing. It's kind of staying fit and healthy. What have you kind yeah. of used programming wise or even just lifestyle wise to make sure that you can keep going? 
I think managing frequency is is the probably the biggest variable. Wow. Um, and I, I think for me, it's it, it's resonated with me probably a bit more because I've done power powerlifting, which is just more invasive <laughs> in that sense. Um, so like I've run high frequency powerlifting programs and gotten great results. Um, but at the end of the day, like you, you, you have to make sure you manage, if you are doing a high frequency routine, realize that not every day is going to be overloading in nature. Yeah. Um, and, and that's one thing that a lot of people probably don't like to hear. Um, so it's, it's, it's the frequency aspect. Um, I think keeping it fun is, is another one and keeping an open mind. And if you kind of understand the conceptual aspect, you don't get like the burnout perspective. It, that's less of a limiting factor mm -hmm. because there, like there is the possibilities are endless really in how you can effectively program. Yeah. Um, and so I would say, you know, just actually realize what your toolbox is. Like, I think a lot of people just think, you know, okay, when it, when it's time to progress, I just need to add more volume. And that might not be the case. And that's one of the, like, I, I'm not a believer that you necessarily have to increase like tonnage or volume over time to keep progressing. I think it's important to realize that volume and intensity, those are basically vehicles to get us to a uh, imposed training stress. Um, and that imposed training stress is going to be greater, the stronger we get per unit of volume. So mm -hmm. like you look at, you know, a high level power lifter, they might be doing less tonnage, but that's because each unit of work that they're doing is, is that much more taxing and stressful. And the same thing applies to a, to a bodybuilder is, is you need to sort of think in a broad sense of like the stress you're imposing. And it, it's more, you're going to have to progress the imposed training stress rather than simply volume. And I think once you realize that, you make more intelligent decisions in your own training um, because that that is something else you know the frequency was popular and then for a while their volume is was you know pushing you know really high amounts of volume was kind of the thing to do mm -hmm. um and it's not that volume isn't effective like I, that's not what i'm saying at all it's just what about volume is effective and do we really need to it's like people would intentionally bury themselves in volume for the sake of progress. And it's like, it's almost, it was kind of like the, the easy way out in a sense yeah. in, in some ways. Um, and so I think just understanding the, the implications of each variable and how it impacts kind of going back to the fitness fatigue model, you can kind of look at it as fitness and sustainability. Mm -hmm. Um, like how is this going to impact my short-term progress? And then how is this going to impact my longevity? And so you need to balance those, um, is, is a, you know, aging bodybuilder or powerlifter. And I think actually that, what that's reminded me of in some ways, I see a parallel to like the dirty bulk and people are like, okay, yeah. to gain muscle, I just need to eat as much as possible. Um, and in that way, yeah, sure. I mean, you might maximize the muscle growth you can get, but you're going to get a load of fat tissue coming with it much like just training. Cause you're like, Oh, more is better of training. So I'm going to make sure that if volume's the key thing, I'm just going to do all the volume. But the trouble yeah. is if you do too much volume, that fatigue that's going to kick in will actually end. Well, just like if you gain so much fat, you're going to become so insensitive, like your muscle cells will become yeah. so in insensitive nu to nutrition. You will end up just gaining fat. Likewise, yeah. if you just keep adding volume, 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 you can be so fatigued that you won't be able to actually perform with any overload. So that will cut people back as well.
Yeah, and it, it's not even that volume carries that risk of, I mean, it obviously carries a risk of fatigue, but it's it's not so much that, I think it's important for the people that are used to those shotgun approaches of just, you know, going in and annihilating a muscle group. It's important for them to realize that there there's a component of that volume story that, you know, it's not necessarily that more, like the message isn't that more isn't better. I mean, that's part of the message, but more can be worse. Like yes. that's, 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 I mean, they've shown in, you know, that the German volume training study that um, came out last year that, you know, the 10 by 10 versus the five by 10, the five by 10, um, at least for strength had significantly better outcomes. And, and, you know, for some measures of hypertrophy did as well, or at least trends towards that. And it's also important that study, I think was only six weeks long. And so if you were to extrapolate that out over a significant period of time, those differences in hypertrophy, you know, perhaps could be significantly greater. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's not like, I think sort of checking yourself in that regard could actually be say like not just saving your health and your sustainability, but also just getting you better progress to begin with. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that people, that's the side of the argument that I think doesn't get enough attention is yeah. that there's, there's a very, the, the concept of doing too much volume is very real and it's, it's pretty common. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's funny to me because people then throughout the arguments are kind of, oh, you can't overtrain and things like this. And whilst that might not be overtrain, I don't think you need to overtrain to fall into that trap. You can still fall into it without overtraining it. You will eventually kind of end up overtraining, no, no doubt, if you can keep it up. Yeah. Uh, but I think most people end up giving up before then because they end up seeing just performance yeah. drop offs all the time. Yeah. And, or it's um, like they'll. Yeah, I'll go ahead and finish. So I was just going to say, just like like finding your the, the correct surplus view kind of on that U-shaped curve, probably there's amounts that's too little to really provide you any benefit. And then there's like a sweet spot and this is going to be different for everyone. And there's too much like volume. You kind of have that sweet spot, which is going to be different mm -hmm. in different times of your career for different peoples. Um, and yeah, that's the only point I wanted to bring up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the difference between... Um, and I'm not sure I have the acronyms, like the MEV and the MRV, like the difference in those, that range can be like, if you're hanging out anywhere in that range, like you're probably in a good place. Yeah. Um, but on average, and obviously, you know, if you start a mesocycle low and work your way up like that, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but what was I going to say? <laughs> no. So I think the, the, variability in that range, the delta of that range varies significantly person to person, yeah. depending on their external stressors. Like they're, you know, people that are, have, you know, less predictable schedules, that range might be significantly larger yeah. than another person. And so I, I've had people that I've worked with that have come to me and they're like, they, they're convinced that they have this, you know, minimum effective sort of baseline that they're like, okay, this is what I need to progress, but it, that's what they think they need. They've never really tried to do less, yeah. you know? And, and so I think some people all of a sudden, um, you know, they end up doing less. And part of that could be just so much residual fatigue has accumulated that it's just masking the expression of, of strength and performance. Yeah. But I think there actually is, is an argument there that, um, the minimum effective dose for most people might actually be below what they perceive it to be to begin with. And I think that's important to acknowledge as well. No, I think absolutely. We've even, both me and Pascal have experiences with clients coming to us who potentially are like bodybuilders and they've maybe had 
kind of exposure to just like the flex magazines where the, the volume's just crazy or you see a lot of these programs online have a lot of intensifier techniques so maybe it's a lot of like general work and then loads of my reps on top or yeah. drop sets and they just throw everything at you and whilst like you say like just like a high frequency strength program can be very beneficial in a short period of time long term these are just going to absolutely destroy you and then we scale back volume and and I think even for myself, I look at kind of a week of training. I'm like, okay, that looks like a week of training that is going to be somewhat like that, that I can do. Whereas if it's less than that, even if I know, like if I go into the gym, it's going to be slightly challenging. I'm like, that's not enough for me. And sometimes we right. need to kind of check ourselves. And I think if anyone is listening to this and they're like, yeah, whenever I start a program week one, like it is like quite like, it's a really tough week. I've never really tried doing less. Like there's no harm in really trying to do less because that just means you can then accumulate progressively overload for even longer. Right. Absolutely. And then Absolutely. just in terms of kind of, um, as a final touch on fatigue management, uh, do you do anything with like deloading or relative, relative intensity? Do you use any of those as tools to try to kind of keep fatigue under control? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, for, for the most part, you know, I, I will have like a low stress week or a deload, whatever you really want to call it, yeah. you know, on average, every probably like four to six weeks for, for most people, obviously there's, there's exceptions to that. Um, but I think that's important in, in something that, you know, beginners, they look at the deload people that are highly motivated, look at a deload, like it's, it's a bad thing or it's a step back or yeah. it's, I, I don't like it when people explain it is they acknowledge the benefits of it, but they'll explain it as like one step back, two steps forward. That's not really what it is Absolutely. at all. It's, 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 it's just two steps forward. <laughs> you know, like you're, you're coming out of the deload in a significantly better position yes. than you went into it. And it's setting you up like not only are you better at the end of that week, it's setting you up for like residual benefits across the whole, you know, subsequent training phase. And so, um, so deloads, like at this point in my training career, like I, I welcome them you know, with, with open arms. Um, but when it comes to, it's, it's a really interesting topic. Um, and the way I would deload a strength athlete is probably a little bit different than the way I would deload a, uh, you know, a physique athlete. And I think, uh, you know, the, the concept obviously is maintain fitness, reduce fatigue yeah. and, you know, fitness for a bodybuilder is maintain hypertrophy, reduce fatigue and for a bodybuilder or for a uh, powerlifter, it's strength. So for, for the strength side of things, I'll often reduce volume and relative intensity, but keep the absolute intensity pretty close to where we're at. So cool. if we were doing, you know, five sets of five, you know, it, whatever percentage, um, I might do, you know, four sets of three. And so it's, it's about half as much volume. You're still getting, you're still getting practice with heavy loads, but it's, it's significantly less fatigue. So I, with strength athletes, I'd say I use relative intensity and, um, you know, volume is, is the main avenues for fatigue reduction versus actually decreasing the load on the bar, which isn't necessarily bad. Like mm -hmm. I think it's, it's, like needed at times, especially if somebody is a little bit banged up. But for a physique athlete, knowing kind of the size principle and the, the implications of, you know, training fast twitch muscle fibers from the hypertrophy side of things, I think the argument can be made is like, we need to keep relative intensity high enough to make sure that those fibers don't detrain. And so in that case, it could be switching to a higher rep range 
um, to give the joints a break, still pushing to a high relative intensity, but decreasing the amount of sets we do. So we're, we're decreasing the total stimulus. And so when you look at it that way, if you go the route of increasing the rep range, you might in some cases have you know, about the same amount of volume once you account for the reduction in sets, but the imposed stress is significantly less. And so that's, that's kind of, you know, goes back to what I said about how you define volume mm -hmm. is it's, um, you want to basically reduce the amount of, get enough stress to maintain, but reduce it to the point where you're coming out of it in a better position than mm -hmm. you were going in. Yeah, I think a lot of people get very confused about deloading and I think the simplicity of what how you put it in that you're just you're trying to maintain a fitness characteristic and you're trying to drop fatigue and allow your preparedness to come back up as as well as like all the kind of glycogen replenishment and everything else that might be going exactly. on. Um, so you need to just, whenever I say to people, like at least go into the gym and when you come out, you should be feeling better, not worse. Kind of, if you feel like, yeah, absolutely. and it's not an overload really, it's meant to be kind of a, no. a deload. So it isn't meant to cause a stress and you are, and I really liked your point and kind of, it is just two steps forward because if you are maintaining the fitness, like you're taking that deload, you're not just taking a whole week yeah. off. You're not seeing any decrement in fitness. So you are just mm. holding tight. Just like when I tell people they're having a diet break. Um, like you're not, you're, you're maintaining in that, yeah. you're not adding fat tissue. So it's actually right. just stepping you forward. So, um, no, I think that was brilliant. And, um, I think that's all the questions I really have for you, Brian. I don't know if there's anything else you kind of want to bring up, um, on the podcast that you have kind of on the top of your head. I know, um, on Instagram, you're always posting the, the interesting questions. So I don't know if there's yeah. anything there that's happened recently that you're like, you um, want to talk about. Not off the top of my head, but I'm sure. I'm sure we'll, uh, the, the question I posted this week was if there's a, an advantage of including lower rep ranges, like below six to eight for a, a, a physique athlete. And mm -hmm. I think, I, I think it's, there could be, um, right. I guess what I'm, what I'm interested in personally is, is the mechanistic, um, like mechanistically what is adaptive resistance like how is adaptive right. resistance occurring on a mechanistic level and what like does actually switching to those lower rep ranges like what is that doing on a physiological front you know assuming we're getting similar levels of tension in recruitment like what additional physiological advantage does that have and that's questioning and going directly against like you said my like experience bias you know right. as a power lifter so it's uh you know, I, I will always include them. And I guess where I stand right now is that, you know, for variety, um, for compliance, I think they're easier to progress in, um, is in terms of adding weight to the bar, obviously. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sold that there's a distinct physiological advantage to including them above what you would see, um, in higher rep ranges. And if mm -hmm. they, if it's simply variability, like, could that variability be achieved in just rep ranges above eight? Mm -hmm. um, could you, you know, be doing eight to 12, you know, and then switch to 15 to 20 and have the same effect. So yeah, I think yeah. that's an interesting area, um, which I'm, I'm, you know, just not sure of on. Yeah, I guess, no, it is really interesting. And it's very understudied. We, it's actually very interesting. You brought it up because, um, in our Facebook group, someone brought up the question of, um, Mike Israel has these phases called, uh, like resensitization phases. So it's kind of like the adaptive resistance builds up to a point where you get what might be 
kind of called uh, anabolic resistance for lack of a better term and uh, so then you go through a period of maintenance lower volumes to kind of resensitize allow pathways to kind of become very kind of sensitive again to higher volumes so you don't have to kind of you kind of get to a point where you can't progress with volume anymore um, and so you take that kind of periodized lower volume phase and then build up again and I know Brad Schoenfeld in like his max muscle plan he introduces kind of a strength phase and we know mm-hmm. periodization for most sports it has a beneficial effect and i know for yeah. bodybuilding it's kind of dubious to whether or not it's required so no i think it's a really interesting topic and it's interesting yeah. to hear your views on it yeah and that that's another like one of the like I, I reached out to people on instagram to kind of message me their thoughts on it and probably the main um argument for it seems to be well it will increase the amount of you know that your strength in those higher rep ranges you know, by running those lower, those higher intensity blocks. And that's true to an extent, but it also, we have to remind ourselves of the principles of specificity. Um, you know, it, what, what's going to give us the best increases in that given rep range? Is it like that, that argument is based off the assumption of getting stronger, like driving up your one RM is going to benefit your 12 RM more than just working at your 12 RM. And so that's, that argument I think falls a little bit flat. Um, but I, I do. I mean, I, I love training in the lower rep ranges. Like it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, so, it is. Uh, it, it'll never it'll never you know dissuade me away from doing it. But it's uh, yeah, it's an interesting topic for sure. No, I know it's something I've thought about before. Is I always had the opinion of if you get stronger, then you can use you can use more volume later. So that should help for hypertrophy because you can use heavier weights. But then I, after kind of, I had a counter thought of if you're using heavier weights, that's producing more fatigue. So then that's actually going to cut your volume back. So then does that actually lead to less hypertrophy? And I know there's been kind of, I know powerlifters who aren't that big, but they're very, very strong. And it's almost like that strength almost is because they are now that strong. They have to use such heavy weights to Mm -hmm. progress. And that actually cuts back the amount of volume they can do. Sometimes that means... I, I don't know if it's potentially making them not get as as muscly, muscular as they potentially could if they could have started off and they were a bit weaker. It's kind of a bit of a weird, it's like, it is what it is. Yeah, but. I mean, I think it's just, in those cases, it's just simply different phases of their training. Like, yeah, if, you, if you're used to training in that four to six rep range on average, you, you really, uh, the only way you can really progress if you're insistent on sticking into that rep range is to increase load. Yeah. And if they, if they, and this is something that I think is worth mentioning, um, if you have power lifters that watch is I'll have athletes that, you know, will focus on kind of the developmental aspect of strength. And by that, I just simply mean hypertrophy, um, you know, further away from a meet and people will see their one RM actually regress. Yeah. And that's like, that's expected. Like that mm-hmm. makes sense why that would happen. But you have to realize that it's an investment in yes. long-term like downstream strength potential. And so those, I, I think it's not pigeonholing yourself to say like, okay, I can only like, I'm all I, I can do now is progress weight to, prog- you know, increase load to progress. Like, no, you can still work in higher rep ranges. It's just, it, it's, <laughs> it's just a more intelligent long-term plan, yeah. you know, like you're, you're able to, you're, you know, to your point that strong, like smaller, you know, less muscular athlete. Now they're actually like just building a bigger machine versus yeah. just, you know, fine tuning theirs. So, um, so I think the develop, you know, when it comes to strength athletes, the developmental aspect 
of, of strength um, should get the majority of attention because it's the variable that we have the most control over, even if, even if it's, you know, the, the progress is slow. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that we can continually progress on, you know, outside of technical refinement and, um, you know, high intensity phases don't need to be as long, like yeah. becoming, you know, any proficiency you lose in a movement, you'll gain back probably in six to eight weeks anyway. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, uh, and I think that, you know, kind of going back to one of the articles I wrote, it's, like use understanding the the utility of those higher rep ranges it it plays into the benefits um of just keeping you healthy long term yeah like you you're you're not going to be doing you know training three times a week with heavy loads it's like i might have a training phase that's six to eight weeks long where i don't see anything below eight reps you know and and but that's not only helping my long-term you know strength potential but it's also making sure I, I stay healthy. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I guess I wish, you know, strength athletes would see the, the benefits of, of some of the more sub maximal, like lower absolute intensity, but higher relative intensity work. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think it's just like, uh, that's, that's the power lifters kind of, they don't want to get rid, lose that one where at max strength and like the bodybuilders yeah. don't want to lose their abs. And it's kind of like, well, sometimes you yeah. have to invest yeah, in exact, you, exactly. you, the payback is the, you get better yeah, in future. You have the short-term cost of the fat gain. <laughs> exactly, and yeah, that's the the bodybuilder, the powerlifter equivalent is, yeah. is like that. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to lose my abs. <laughs> it's a good analogy. Awesome. Well, I think we've covered a great deal there. Yeah. I've, I've kind of kept you for a, a while now, and um, I just want to say a massive thank you for a really, really interesting discussion. Um, and I think if people do want to kind of, I don't know, these, I, I find these really interesting and the discussion's really cool. So if people want to kind of get involved in that, more of that, I think definitely head over to your Instagram because I know you, you, you kind of respond back to people and um, I know you have some yeah. great discussions over there. So that'd be really cool. So I'll make sure that's linked below. Um, but if there's anywhere else where, if people want to reach out to you, um, I'll make sure your blog articles are linked below and your blog in general. Um, is there anything anywhere else people should try and kind no, of find I think, you, uh, you know, Instagram, I'm on there a lot, um, at BD minor and then, uh, yeah, just my website and my email is on my Instagram as well. So, you know, I, I, I enjoy interacting with people, um, that, you know, look and look at things and kind of like taking things apart and putting them back together. Like it's, it's fun working with, uh, other critical thinkers for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you, Brian, again. And I want to thank all the listeners for listening and we will catch you soon. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Steve. Have fun.